the uh, last sermon in Luke before January. We're going to take a little break, uh, and we're going to celebrate Advent together. We're going to have a different little mini-sermon series uh, starting the first week in December. Uh, and uh, next week, we're going to do something a little different than that altogether. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to finish up this morning uh, with uh, the passage of Scripture that holds the theme verse uh, for Luke, which is found in verse uh, 10 of chapter 19, which we'll read uh, in just a minute. But uh, let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. What do you think it would, uh, it would take for God to celebrate? What do you think would take for, for God to, to throw a party? What do you think moves God to the raucous kind of joy uh, that just really kind of gets your feet uh, tapping and dancing and your, and your face smiling? Uh, what really kind of gives God a kick? You got any idea about that? You know, some people say, well, probably, you know, God probably looks down the earth and sees people doing bad things and he decides, you know, he's going to squash this one or that one or, he's, you know, he's going to, I always thought when I was in high school, you know, if I was really bad, God was going to give me acne and keep me from being able to get dates. You know, and maybe that's what gets God motor going. You know, he can really punish people for all the bad stuff they do. Uh, we, on the other hand, celebrate positive events, don't we? We celebrate birthdays, right? We celebrate, uh, we'll celebrate Christmas in a few weeks. We celebrate Thanksgiving uh, this, coming, this coming week. It doesn't take a whole lot for humans to get together and decide uh, that they want to have a party. It could be a, an anniversary. Uh, Cindy and I had a great anniversary celebration. We just celebrated uh, our 27th anniversary three weeks ago, and uh, two weeks ago, and we, I should remember the date. And um, we went up to Caldies in Kirkwood, and then we went to, uh, to Target. And we did some shopping. It was a great, it was a great evening, you know, and our kids were all gone and doing their own deal. And, you know, we knew we'd kind of reached, uh, you know, the, the perfection of marriage when you can do that on your anniversary. And that's a great evening. We were, I think we were at home asleep by 930. Um, but we, you know, we celebrate the holidays. We celebrate graduations. In a few weeks, they say they're going to be literally 4 million people descending on Washington for the, uh, for the inauguration. We celebrate for all kinds of reasons. I actually plan my own birthday party every year because I want it to go off just right. Uh, I have a certain way that I want to do it, and I don't trust it to anybody else. And for the last three years, I've planned my, my own birthday party because I want it to be just, uh, just right. Uh, but Cindy will tell you, I don't even need a reason to, to have a party. Uh, a few weeks ago after church, uh, back in September, I was sitting with Bruce Owens and Michael Miller, and Michael was telling us about his college son who wanted to know how to roast a pig. The guys in their apartment building decided they were going to have a pig roast. And, you know, Michael was talking about it and how he had found the instructions online. He had sent them to Luke, and he thought it went okay. And I looked at Michael, and I said, that sounds like a party to me. I mean, we can't let your kid roast a pig and, and us not do it. And all of a sudden, you know, we had 100 people over at our house for a party. It doesn't take much for humans to celebrate. It's easy for us to find some joy in life. What does it take for God to celebrate? What does it take for him to throw a party? Well, if you remember back in Luke chapter 15, and I'm not going to put the, the verses on the screen, but a few weeks ago we looked at this passage, and it talked about a man who had lost a sheep and a woman who had lost a coin and then another man who had lost a son. And at the end of each of those stories, when the, when the sheep is found and, and when the coin is found, the first two stories, Jesus says this to the crowd that's listening to him, there's more celebration in heaven over one lost sinner that repents than 99 that don't. And Jesus is saying God gets a kick out of people, seeing people come to salvation, seeing people turn from their sinful lives and embrace him and live. 
And the story that we looked at in depth was the story of what is called the prodigal son. It should actually probably be called the prodigal sons. But at the end of that story, when, when the son comes home, and he begins a speech, you know, he talks to, the, talks to his father about how bad he's been, and his father interrupts him, and he says this to him. He says to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Friends, I want to suggest to you this morning that we have a very, very warped view of what it means for God to celebrate. If you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, do you understand that when you put your faith in Christ, that there was a party in heaven? Because God gets more of a kick out of seeing people come to salvation than anything else. And if you're not a believer this morning, you're a little bit skeptical and you're wondering about this, you haven't put your faith in Christ, do you understand that there's a party in heaven waiting to happen if you turn to Christ? The question isn't, friends, is God going to celebrate? That's not the question. The question is, will we join in? With that in mind, let's look at Luke chapter 19, the first 10 verses. It's talking about Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, and Luke records the following experience in the life of Jesus. Speaking about Jesus, and he says, He entered Jericho, was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have, de- de- excuse me, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to your word this morning, uh, perhaps many of us uh, feel somewhat on the outside like Zacchaeus. Uh, We want to come and see who Jesus is, but uh, we don't think he'll be very excited to see us or to interact with us. It might be because of, of decisions we have made in our own lives that have been, uh, have been poor decisions. It might be because someone has uh, wronged us in the past and in some way has made us feel as if we were of no worth uh, or value. So, Father, this morning as we study this word, I, I pray that we would see the uh, affection of Jesus' heart. I pray that we would see the, just the absolute joy he had and seeing Zacchaeus come to faith. And Father, I also pray that we would see uh, that uh, he invites us to be part of sharing that affection with others. So Lord Jesus, as we study this word, I pray that it would ring true in each and every heart. Father, what I have to say is not important. It is only your eternal word that carries weight here this morning. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would forgive my sin, that you would move me out of the way, and that you would teach us 
your word and your Holy Spirit. We pray in your name here this morning. So I pray, Lord Jesus, of the story that uh, we read this morning, Zacchaeus. If you grew up in church, you know that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? A wee little man was he, he up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Okay. Uh, for those of you that didn't grow up in church, you, did, you haven't found a cult. We, you know, we don't have a secret handshake. We're not weird. That's a song that we learned when we were uh, tiny little children growing up in Sunday school. Uh, but a lot of people know the story of Zacchaeus. They knew he was short. They know he climbed up in a sycamore tree. They know that he wanted to see Jesus. But the background of the story of Zacchaeus, which again, maybe a lot of you know, so I'm not going to spend a time just, but as a quick refresher, uh, Zacchaeus was a no good trader. <laughs> He was a person that was absolutely hated by his countrymen. He was filthy rich, which if you have a lot of money, people tend to be jealous of you a little bit anyway, uh, even if you earned it honestly. But Zacchaeus came by it dishonestly. He had oppressed his fellow countrymen. He had become a, a lackey for the, for the Roman army that was occupying uh, Israel. And he went out and he collected their taxes. And the Romans said, Zacchaeus, we want X amount of taxes every year. And whatever you get beyond that, you get to keep. And Zacchaeus was thrilled with that opportunity, and he got a, probably a group of people around him to, uh, to help uh, persuade people to pay their taxes on time, and he became rich by oppressing his fellow countrymen. Uh, he was hated by everyone, and on top of that, he was a short guy. So Zacchaeus has all kinds of issues. Uh, and there's nothing in Zacchaeus that would really draw us to him. There's nothing in his personality. There's nothing in, in the character or the quality in his life that would make you say, if you were a Jew living in, in Palestine during that age, hey, I want to go to Jericho and hang out with Zacchaeus. You would think, you know what? I really hate that no good so-and-so. I hope he gets what's coming to him. So that's the setting in which Jesus finds himself as he's passing through uh, Jericho, which makes my first observation of this text really quite astounding. I want you to notice the object of Jesus' affection. In verse 5, Jesus looks up. He comes to this place. He sees Zacchaeus, and in front of this entire crowd of literally probably hundreds, maybe thousands of people following Jesus, he stops the procession. He looks up at the tree and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. I went back and checked the Greek to make sure that was the right word, that word must. That Jesus, you know, Zach, you and I have an appointment and we cannot miss it under any set of circumstances. And that's exactly what it says in the Greek. Jesus was emphatic. Jesus was compelled by something to go and visit with Zacchaeus. And so I began to ask myself, well, what would compel Jesus? Would it, would it be his sense of obligation would it be his sense of duty, his sense of responsibility? Was Jesus saying, you know, I really don't like Zach that much? <laughs> Quite frankly, he really is a no good bum. <laughs> I remember when I was a little boy and we passed through Jericho and, and we stopped at the toll booth and we, and, and we had to pay some money. I really don't like him, but I know that I'm supposed to tell him the truth. So, I, you know, gosh, I guess I'll go do it. You know, a lot of us kind of live our Christian faith that way. Like it's something we, we got to do, but we really don't see the joy in it. I don't think that was Jesus' motivation at all. I believe Jesus was compelled. I believe Jesus was absolutely certain that he had an appointment with Zacchaeus and an appointment with destiny, so to speak, on that day. But I believe his compulsion was not out of duty or responsibility, but it was out of affection. It was out of love. The Apostle John, when he wrote his letter to the Christians in Ephesus that we now call 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John in the end of the New Testament, the Apostle John was uh, standing next to Jesus when this event happened. He was one of the 12 inner, inner circle guys. He was right there. He was arm's length, I promise you, from Jesus when Jesus made this statement to Zacchaeus. 
The Apostle John says this in chapter 4, 1 John. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I believe that John caught on to this. And he understood that what compelled Jesus was his affection for the lost. It was not duty. It was not responsibility. But it was something much, much deeper. Jesus actually looked at Zacchaeus and saw all the junk in his life and all the bad decisions he made and all the crooked deals that he had, he had manipulated and all the swindling he had done, and he still loved him unconditionally. Which says to me this morning, if you're sitting here and you think that God can't love you, with all due respect and with humility, I will tell you, you are sadly mistaken. God loves us in spite of the things that we have done, in spite of the choices that we have made. God's love is unconditional. He loved us first. And although the, the conversation is not recorded, we don't know exactly what Jesus and Zach talked about in those moments. Luke doesn't go into any specific detail, but it's very, very clear from the text that somewhere along the line, the, the light came off for Zacchaeus and he got it. And he understood that he could put his faith in Christ, and he did so. And the object of Jesus' affection turns to him as he hears the gospel, and he puts his faith in Christ. I believe that Zacchaeus felt the unconditional love that Jesus has to offer. I believe that Zacchaeus understood the truth that he was a sinner, that he was lost, but that Jesus had come to redeem him and that he too could have life. And somewhere in this conversation, Zacchaeus puts his faith in Jesus. The object of Jesus's affection may surprise us in the story, but the second question that I want to throw out this morning is simply this. Are lost sinners like Zacchaeus objects of my affection? Are they objects of your affection? People that you know, people that I know who don't know Jesus, how much do we really care for them? How much concern do we have for their soul? Do I have have enough concern that that I might say to them, hey, let's go out and grab lunch and and I want to talk to you about spiritual matters. I want to see where your heart is with the Lord. I want to see how your soul is doing. Do Do I love them enough to say, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee? Now, I'm interested in the condition of your soul, and I have a message that I want to share with you because perhaps you've never heard it before. Do we have that much affection that we would look up in the proverbial tree, so to speak, and say, hey, come on down. I really got to talk to you today. Now, I know as I, as I was preparing the sermon, I knew that when I got to this point, this is where people are going to start kind of feeling a little bit uncomfortable. The idea of actually calling somebody and saying, hey, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus, it kind, of, it kind of makes you feel a little bit uneasy kind of makes you feel, well, I'm not quite sure that I could pull that off. And there might be a variety of reasons for that. It might be that you've never done it and you just haven't had the experience. It might be that, that it feels a little bit fearful. It might be that you've talked to somebody before and maybe you haven't had the most positive experience. Uh, but a lot of folks probably have a lot of different reasons. You know, I care. I really do. I'm concerned about people's souls, but I'm not sure what to say. And, and what if they ask me a hard question? What if there's, there's uh, something that they toss up there that I, I can't, uh, I can't uh, begin to explain? Uh, what do I do? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I don't know if you really asked, but I'm glad you asked. When you walked in this morning, uh, we handed you a little pamphlet. Now, this is not the end-all, be-all, the only way that you can share your faith with people. There are lots of different ways to share your faith with people. But if you're sitting here this morning saying, gee, I don't even know where to begin, I'm going to give you a five-minute course 
on sharing your faith. And, and you, don't, you can look through the, the pictures and the words uh, in this, but really it's for you to take home uh, and to use later on. We're going to put some of the images up on the screen, and I'm literally just going to take about five minutes and show you how simple it is to have a Jesus Zacchaeus conversation with somebody for whom you hold a great affection who needs to know the Lord Jesus. Just a, a couple of thoughts. First one is our sin results in separation from God. And you see the big chasm there, and, and it's a very good visual for us that God is holy, that God is perfect, and that man is sinful. Now, I think just about everybody would agree that man has flaws. I've never talked to somebody and shared the gospel with them and explained to them that sin means that you don't do everything good that you could possibly do, or that they're a transgressor, which means that sometimes they purposely do wrong things. I've never shared that with a person and have them say, oh, no, I've never, I've always done everything perfectly, and, and I've never purposely done anything wrong. I've never had that experience, and I've shared my faith with, I'm sure, over 100 people individually in my life. Every person I've ever talked to said, yeah, I get that. I understand. I haven't made the best choices. You know, I, in college, I made some decisions that I'd prefer not to, not to talk about right now. You know, everybody can look at those places where they say, yeah, I haven't quite lived up. So this is not a difficult concept for people to grasp. The challenge is when you say, now, God is holy and God is perfect. And that begins to make people uncomfortable because they think, well, if I'm, if I'm sinful and God's perfect, what am I going to do? How am I going to what? How am I going to bridge this gap? Or do I want to bridge this gap? Because if he's holy and I'm not, he may be out to get me. So the second question is, well, how can I possibly bridge that chasm, which takes you to the next picture? And there's all kinds of different answers, but the bottom line is none of our efforts can bridge this gap. There's only one remedy for this problem of separation from God. And there's some, some things that the author, of this, uh, the author of this little pamphlet tossed out there as a suggestion. Good works. People say, you know, I'm going to try to work hard. I'm going to go to church. I put a little money in the offering. I'm going to, you know, do some good things. And probably God will look at the good and hopefully see that it outweighs the bad. A religion right along with that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice some kind of, of uh, acknowledgement that God's up there and that I like him and think he's a good guy and hope he likes me uh, and do some kind of religious activity. Uh, maybe philosophy, maybe morality, but you get the idea that man begins to say to himself, how would you be acceptable in God's eyes? And again, when I've asked people this question, lots of answers like this come up. They tend to be, I, you know, I try to be a good person. And what this picture shows is that our efforts, while they might get part of the way, will never get us all the way because the difference between man and God is so radical. God is perfect. And we fall infinitely short of that. So no matter how many good works, no matter how much religion, religion or philosophy or morality we practice, that gap can never be crossed. So what do we do? Well, if you look at the third picture in your booklet there, it simply says God has provided the only solution and we must make a choice. And obviously the, the picture is intended to put Christ in the center of this. And that's where you have the opportunity to say to somebody, like Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, there's hope. <laughs> You don't have to stay separated from God for all of eternity. You could put your faith and your trust in me. And there's the opportunity where you can explain to someone what the cross of Jesus meant. Again, that verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that, God, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus bridged that gap. He paid the price for your sin. And so the choice is up to us. And then the fourth screen simply says this. Where are you? Are you here or are you here? And it shows some of the things that go along with sin and guilt, rebellion, separation, lack of purpose, and what we experience through Christ, peace and forgiveness and abundant life. 
And so it's a very simple, it's a very simple presentation. Now, again, you don't have to use this presentation. We put it in your hands this morning because we think it's a good one. We think it's, it's something, you know, I can stick this in my back pocket. I can put this in my shirt pocket. You can throw it in your purse. You can, you know, wherever you go, you can have this on hand because there are going to be people that God is going to put in your lives for whom you have great affection and who don't know him. And one of the reasons he brings those people to you is so you can bring them to Jesus. So given this just very simple example, and this, I think, very effective and yet simple tool, there are two questions that come out of it this morning, and I want to ask both of them with equal uh, concern. And the first one is, are you here or are you, or are you here? Have you put your faith in Christ? That's a decision that only you can make. But that's why Green Tree exists. If you want to know why we're here, what we're all about, it's because we want to share the forgiveness of Jesus with others. But secondly, for those of us who are disciples of Christ, are we willing to prepare ourselves? Are we willing to to take the time to, to learn something like this simple presentation? Are we willing to take the time to study God's word so that when those moments come, when those opportunities arise, we'll be able to speak the truth to those lost sinners who are the objects of our affection and more importantly, the objects of God's salvation. There's more in this passage. I want to jump back into Luke now. And I want you to notice that the, the net result of uh, coming to Christ for salvation is not just eternal life. It's not just for after we die, but there's actually an impact that happens today. And I've termed it this way. Affection leads to affection. Look at verse 8. Jesus has this conversation with Zacchaeus. Again, it's not recorded, but but we know he comes to Christ because Zacchaeus stands up and says to the Lord, it's like everybody's seated around the lunch table uh, and they're having a good lunch and Jesus and Zacchaeus have been over here talking and Zacchaeus gets it. And, and, he, and he comes to faith and the lunch continues. And at some point, Jesus or Zacchaeus stands up in front of everybody and before the Lord. And he says this, behold, Lord, half of the, my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I believe that one of the reasons God celebrates salvation, one of those reasons, you know, that that there's more celebrating in heaven when one lost sinner comes to repentance, I believe that one of the reasons God celebrates it is not just that our eternal life has now been secured in Christ, but he knows that our affections will change when we meet Jesus. Zacchaeus' priorities changed immediately. It was no longer about Zac. It was no longer about the accumulation of wealth. It was no longer about cheating people and stealing from people in order to better your own circumstances. But rather, now he wanted to have a positive impact on the people around him. Now he wanted to take this faith that has just been born in his life, and he wants to make a practical application. And he says, Jesus, my hang-up's been money. (laughs) That's what I've lived my whole life for, but no more, never again. Now I'm going to use what I have in a righteous way, in a glorious way. I'm going to give half of it to the poor. I'm going to liquidate half of what I own, and I'm going to give it to the poor. And if I've wronged anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times over. And you can hear the people around the crowd going, yeah, if he's wronged anybody, (laughs) you know, where's that line for him? Let me start. (laughs) You know, it's clear that Zacchaeus was making an obligation to impoverish himself for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because affection leads to affection. When we were in uh, Flippy in South Africa in the Cape, Cape Town Flats uh, about a year and a half ago, we met a young woman. I'm going to try and pronounce her name, and I don't know that I'll get it right. Uh, Babel Wajama. 
I didn't say Baba Wawa for those of you Saturday Night Live fans. Okay, Baba Wawa Jama. It's a 25-year-old single uh, young gal that lives in the Cape Flats. And she works with the ministry in Flippe, which we went to visit. And uh, she's an expert in computers. And they've set up, they've purchased about 10 or 12 computers. And part of the, the deal they do is when the kids come to uh, the church after school, she gives them computer training. And she helps them learn about uh, how, they can, how they can get a job working on the computers, working with technology, which is a great thing. But, and that's what she does during the day. That's kind of her day job. And she does that because she's come to Christ for salvation and she wants to give something back to her community. She wants to see affection creates affection for others. But you know what she really loves to do? This 25-year-old single mom who is skinny as a rail, I mean, soaking wet, she might weigh 115 pounds, Okay beautiful smile, beautiful brown eyes. She loves to go out and walk the streets of her community, which are very, very poor, and in many places, very, very dangerous. And she likes to find the gangs, the teenager who's standing on the street corner waiting to rob somebody or break into a house. And she goes up to them and she tells them about Jesus. And she says, you know, I'm so grateful that God has made me good with computers. I'm so thankful that I get the chance to help these children learn this. But you know what I really like to do? And you just see those eyes light up. I like to go find the meanest of most terrible gang members. And I like to bring them to Jesus. God celebrates your salvation and mine, not just because we have eternal life, but because affection begets affection. You bring somebody to Jesus, has a ripple effect, and the party spreads. One other observation about the text, and that's this. Not only does affection lead to affection, but seeking the lost is at the core of the heart of Jesus. Look at verses uh, 9 and 10. Jesus, in response to Zacchaeus' statement, says this, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost salvation, new life, restoration. This was Jesus's passion. That's why this is the, the theme verse. And all, all theologians pretty much agree uh, in one accord that 1910 is the theme verse of Luke. It best describes the life and the ministry of Jesus. He was all about sharing faith with others. He was all about taking his life and making it impact others for life. That's why he was on his way. When he stopped off to see Zacchaeus, he was on his way to the cross. When we picked the study back up in, uh, in January, uh, we've broken it down into three categories. Last year, about this time, we looked at the Son of Man uh, came, and we looked at the coming of Jesus. And for the last year, we've been looking at the Son of Man seeking. When we, when we, get, to, um, when we get to January, we're going to start looking at the Son of Man saving his ministry to go to the cross and save us. So he's on his journey, he's on his way, but as he goes, he's so excited and he doesn't pass up the opportunity to talk to someone, even the scoundrel Zacchaeus, about faith. But what we learn from this passage is not only the heart of Jesus, but we also know that Jesus has passed on this opportunity to us. Jesus isn't walking around on the planet anymore. He's in heaven. He's he's being worshiped, as Mike read in Revelation this morning, worthy is the Lamb. But he has left you and I here and he's given us his word and he said to us, go and make disciples. Last thing he said before he left earth, this is what you're to do. Some commentators say that passage in Matthew should read, wherever you go or as you're going, in other words, as you're living your life, wherever it may take you, always be in the process 
of making disciples? Do I have at the core of my heart the seeking heart of Jesus? I, uh, I love getting home after work and listening to Cindy tell me stories about her day because uh, she works with really tough kids and there's always, there's always an adventure. It's really astounding. But, but oftentimes she'll come home and she'll tell me about somebody she talked to about Jesus that day. And I'm like, wait a minute. But, you know, separation of church and state, you're going to get in trouble. You, you know, you got to be careful at Kirkwood High School. You're there to, you know, to be a teacher. You're not, you, you, you get in trouble doing that. She says, well, you know what? If, if I just walked up to one of the students and I said, I want to tell you about Jesus, I would get in trouble. But it's very clear that if someone asks me a question, I can answer it. So if a student knows that I'm praying and they say, do you believe in prayer? I can say, sure, I believe in prayer and let me tell you why. Or if they say, Ms. Ricks, do you believe in a God? She can say, absolutely, I believe in a God. And let me tell you about Jesus. The seeking heart of Jesus. Affection leads to affection. It's the most natural thing in the world for her to do, to share Christ with someone. We got a call this week from a Green Tree family who had a, a brother who was sick and uh, needed someone to come and, and to visit. Uh, he didn't know Christ. And I, I called one of the pastors and I called one of the guys here at Green Tree and I said, hey, on Friday, can you guys go visit? Absolutely, we'll be happy to. I got the email sitting on my desk Saturday morning when I got there. Went, had a great visit, a wonderful time. He prayed to receive Christ. Affection leads to affection, the seeking heart of Jesus. I think if we are believers this morning, the most important takeaway from this text is will we follow our Lord's leading? How do we respond to the seeking heart of Jesus? And I'm going to give you four very brief uh, responses. We'll be done. First of all, I think we need to pray. Uh, We need a prayer of repentance. (laughs) Many of us don't trust God. We don't believe that he's strong enough to knock down some of the defenses that others put up. And so we just basically have checked out of the whole opportunity for evangelism in our lives. We don't believe uh, that his love truly has embraced us, perhaps. Maybe we're struggling with our own identity in Christ. And consequently, we don't share with others. And friends, that's, that's sin. I mean, I'd like to tell you it's not. I'd like to tell you it's you know, kind of a, you know, something you can do if you want to, but if not, don't worry about it. But friends, if we're not sharing our faith with others, we're, we're in the wrong. And I think perhaps we need to begin with a, with a prayer of repentance. But then secondly, I think we need to ask the Father who graciously forgives us to restore the joy of our salvation. You know, I started out by saying, what does it take for God to have a party? And and talked about the different times where we have parties in our lives and how quick we are as humans to celebrate. You know, I never have a problem inviting people to a party. In fact, if we have seven or eight or nine people over to our house, that's, I don't consider that a party. Cindy considers that a major gathering, okay? I'm, the, I'm like, seven or eight, are you kidding? I, I can't, where's 20 or 30 more? <laughs> I mean, let's really have a party if we're going to celebrate. And I think that that's the joy that needs to be restored in many of our hearts. We want to share Christ with people out of joy and out of thankfulness. And some of us look at, 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 you know, if I said, I'm going to go and talk to my friend about Jesus this afternoon, we'd almost feel like it was about the same as going and knocking on my neighbor's door and tell him that I ran over his dog. (laughs) You know, we have that much excitement about that potential conversation. Where's the joy? Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? Do you understand his life was given for you at the cross and he did that for the joy set before him so that he could bring you to salvation? How can we not joyfully Share that with others. I was talking to a buddy on the phone about this, this sermon. I said, you know, the more I think about this, 
the more I, I'm impassioned again for sharing my faith, I said, you know, I have, and, I, and I'm not saying this to, uh, this is going to sound like I'm trying to brag. I'm not, but I've, I have two hole-in-ones in my life, sheerly by accident, okay? <laughs> Trust me, I have so many more bad golf shots than good, good golf shots, but I have two hole-in-ones. And the first one I didn't see go in the hole because I was blacked out. The second one I saw, I went in the hole and I was with three friends and we jumped and cheered and had a great time. But I thought about that experience, you know, and that's the pinnacle for a golfer is a hole-in-one, right? I said to my friend, leading one person to Christ or having a hole-in-one, I can't even begin to compare those two. There is no comparison. One is of eternal joy, significance. Do I have that kind of joy in my life for sharing with others? Prayer of repentance, asking the Father to restore our joy. Thirdly, preparation. You need to be prepared to talk to folks. Jesus was ready to talk to Zach. The Apostle Paul, when he went out and shared the gospel with people, he was ready to talk. And a lot of us aren't prepared. A lot of us aren't sure where we would start. That's why we're putting this in your hands this morning. This is a great starting, this is a great starting and ending point. You get this one down, and you can talk to anybody anywhere about Christ. But take time to prepare yourself so that you can share with others. And then start seeking. The Son of Man came to seek. We need to open our eyes. We need to look around us. And I promise you, you won't have to look very far to find people to invite to the party. Think of what Green Tree Community Church would be like every Sunday morning if this room was filled with hundreds of people who were like Zacchaeus, who needed to be invited. Think of the kind of party we would have. Let's pray together.